Welcome to Diet for a Large Planet, brought to you by the History Department, the Clio Society, and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University, and by the Bexley Public Library. My name is Nick Breifogel. I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are facing a world food crisis of unparalleled proportions, a reliance on unsustainable dietary choices and agricultural systems is causing problems both for human health and the health of our planet. Solutions from lab-grown food to vegan diets to strictly local food consumption are often discussed. But the central question remains, how did we get to this point? Our speaker today, Professor Chris Otter, will take us back over the last 200 years to explore how we developed our current diet, heavy in meat, wheat, and sugar. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. Dr. Chris Otter is a professor of history at The Ohio State University, who works on the history of food, technology, and science. He's the author of such books as The Victorian Eye, A Political History of Light and Vision in Britain, and his most recent book, Diet for a Large Planet, Industrial Britain, Food Systems, and World Ecology. And that's a book he'll speak about uh, today. With that introduction, let me mention the plan. Professor Otter will open with a presentation on the history of our food. And then we'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And we'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. Now, without further ado, let me pass you over to Professor Chris Otter, who will take us on an exploration of diet for a large planet. Chris. Uh, thank you, Nick, and thanks for that generous introduction. Thanks also to Clara for all the hard work organizing this. I am now going to share my screen so you can see my, um, my slideshow, um, which I'm going to uh, put on now. Um, so I'm going to begin um, with a recent document published in 2019 by the Eat uh, Lancet Commission on Food, Planet and Health. Um, and this report pulled no punches at all. And I got a quote from it here. Food systems have the potential to nurture human health and support environmental sustainability. However, they are currently threatening both. The commission's second report discusses what it calls the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition and climate change. Um, arguing that diets, and again, I quote, high in calories, added sugars, saturated fats, processed foods and red meats underpin surging rates of metabolic disorders, greenhouse gas emissions, um, and even are heavily linked to the extinction uh, of, of species. The idea that global food systems and meat-rich diets are inching us towards crisis has become commonplace. Tim Lang, professor of food policy at City University London, Put it bluntly in 2009, the world cannot eat as the United States or the UK eats. There are not enough planets to feed the world with the volume or range enjoyed by Americans or Europeans. And this language of not enough planets echoes um, the work of Francis Moore LePay uh, from 1971. It's the 50th anniversary of this very important uh, work, Diet for a Small Planet, 
where she blamed a diet rich in meat and refined carbohydrates environment. And she urged on the food chain. Now, the question for a historian is how did we get to this point? How and why did this happen? And most analyses of today's food crisis really only limit their study to about 1950 to the present, placing the blame firmly on post-war America, on big corporations, um, on neoliberalism, and folding it sometimes into what's called the Great Acceleration, whereby our planetary um, environmental systems begin to go haywire after 1950. Um, what I argue in my book and what I'm going to talk about it in today is the deeper historical origins of this global syndemic or world food crisis. And I'm going to make a, a rather bold argument here that these origins are really not American, but they are, um, I wouldn't say entirely, but perhaps primarily British, located in the British world food system of the 19th um, and early 20th centuries. Britain was during this period, the, the world dominant power, economic power and military power, commanding immense global resources, creating long distance food chains, chains which made meat, uh, wheat and sugar, the diet of progress. So through its precocious industrialization, urbanization and population growth and its abundant fossil fuels and vast empire and its liberal political economy, Britain created the conditions under which the idea of using the entire planet as a food source became thinkable, viable, and systematic. The British diet appears less an object of ridicule than something worthy of serious critical historical inquiry. So I wanna begin with this diet itself, not a nice place to start, admittedly, um, in his book, The First World War, an agrarian interpretation Avner Offer refers to the white flour, the refined sugar, the processed fats and frozen meat, cheap imported staples, which have given Britain the worst dietary heritage in Europe. Ouch. But historically critical. What are the defining features of this diet? First of all, um, as I've already mentioned, the rising consumption of several key um, foodstuffs, animal proteins, refined grains, and we're talking here particularly wheat, sugar, whether from beet or cane, and dairy products. Um, a rising per capita calorific intake. This can be historically tricky to establish, but there's little question that by uh, the early 20th century, and certainly by 1950, British people were eating considerably more than they had done in the past. We also have changed uh, patterns of mortality and morbidity. Um, this is a, a phenomenon uh, sometimes called the, the demographic or epidemiologic transition. With a rising, uh, with a, a sort of decline in um, infectious diseases and a rise in sometimes what are called low, uh, lifestyle diseases such as cancer or heart disease. This is an initially Western phenomenon, but one of the important things about 20th century history is that this type of diet becomes inseparable from global patterns of development. Now, from the point of view uh, of my research on this question, the key phenomenon is, is global outsourcing. Um, 
Britain's food policy was ostentatiously uh, to um, uh, basically abandon or at least uh, significantly reduce its domestic agriculture and use the entire world um, as a food resource. We have a shift from this initial policy of internal outsourcing. This is, this is using um, the peripheral uh, or more peripheral sort of Celtic zones of Britain, Scotland, Ireland, and, and so forth for, as agrarian zones to the use of non-contiguous agrarian zones across the world. North America, South America, particularly temperate Argentina, Australasia, also Denmark um, and Germany. Um, and this is driven uh, by technological capacity to dominate and subdue such spaces. There's often a violent process involving the forced uh, removal or extermination of first peoples, um, coupled with the rise of domestic industrialization and urbanization in Britain, and an ideology um, particularly associated with David Ricardo. Um, we sometimes call it political economy, but the, the, the most important aspect here is something called comparative advantage. And Ricardo argued that um, if, if other parts of the world could produce food more cheaply than Britain, then there was no point us producing uh, food and we should focus on what we were best at, which was um, industrial production. One of the consequences of this policy is, as this rather complicated graph shows, um, is declining food prices. By the 1890s or 1900, because of this global system, food prices in Britain were lower than they were in, in France or Germany. So this was, this was seen as being in the interests of industrialists. Now the key dietary uh, elements in terms of calorific intake, as I've said, were, were meat and particularly beef, although lamb is also significant, uh, wheat and sugar. I'm gonna really largely focus on meat here. I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about wheat and sugar too. Um, now, meat has long been associated, however, nebulously um, with Britishness. Um, but in the mid 19th century, there were concerns about rising prices and, and limited supply. Now, there were many possible paths Britain could have took. It could have intensified domestic livestock production. It could have gone vegetarian. Um, it could have started eating horse meat. Um, none of these fitted British economic and cultural imperatives. The key then, was going overseas for resources. But livestock in the Americas, for example, weren't quite right for British tastes. The existing breeds were often seen as kind of tough and stringy. And they didn't have this like big layer of fat, which was very common um, in the mid 19th century. So what we see is Britain exporting large numbers of animals, um, particularly Shorthorns, Herefords, and, and Frisian cattle um, to improve herds across the world, to the United States, to New Zealand, and to Argentina. We had a similar story with, with, with pigs. Um, these are particularly associated with, with Danish pig breeding, which supplied much of the British bacon market, um, which was established uh, by uh, crossing uh, British Yorkshire pigs with indigenous Danish pigs to produce what's called the Danish landrace pig. Here's an example of a Danish landrace pig. Similar story with sheep. This is a New Zealand Corriedale, an entirely new species created in the 19th century to satisfy the demands of British market for lamb. Um, one piece of data will suffice here just to show the economic significance of this. 
1933, about 95% of world trade in mutton and lamb was British. So these are sort of networks created explicitly to feed Britain. Biologically innovating to produce newer and potentially better sources of meat. Um, as well as breeding techniques, this involves um, novel feeding regimen and ultimately fattening from birth, producing what was sometimes called baby beef, slaughtered between 12 and 20 years old. The bovine body changes shape uh, with weight gravitating towards the, the rump. There's also a conscious project um, to move away from this layer of fat around the meat to interspersing fat throughout muscle. This is known as marbling. And this is what, when you have a fine and fancy steak, this is what the steak looks like. It's well marbled. There's nothing natural about this. This is a calculated product of breeding and feeding regimen. Technological innovation is also vital here. At first, these animals were shipped live back to Britain to be slaughtered. Um, but from the 1870s, we see reliable freezing and mechanical refrigeration technology, which brought beef from Argentina, mutton from New Zealand, bacon from Denmark, and developing something which was called, became called the cold chain, the term dates from about 1908. So this is a sort of logistical and biological system that enabled Britain to command such large uh, resources. A quick note on, on wheat here. Um, by around 1908, two-fifths of all wheat entering the global marketplace went to Britain, and by World War I, around 80% of British wheat was imported. And this is an astonishing figure. It's a complete turnaround from the sort of self-sufficiency which Britain had um, in the pre-1800 period. Now here, the, the story is, is less about Argentina and Denmark than it is about Canada. In 1923, Canada became the world's largest wheat exporter and Canada supplied 53% of British uh, wheat imports by 1923. And the prairie landscape became one of the earth's most monocultural spaces. In some areas of the prairie, wheat composed 90% of all crops. Um, we need to emphasize elements of this technological system that's put in place. So for example, the mobility provided by the Canadian railways, standardizability um, and storability. Here is a, a series of grain inspectors uh, in Canada. Canada had the finest system of grain inspection in the world, which meant that, that it was tr trustworthy um, because its standards were, were very strict and there, was, there were fewer attempts to kind of evade regulations with this. Now you also have telegraphs conveying near instantaneous information on crops. And this meant that the price differentials began to drop. It meant that suddenly by 1910, Canadian wheat was cheaper than English wheat or at least the same price. Speculation and futures trading became central to the world wheat market. Now, just as in the case of, of meats and beef, we also see biological innovation. What British customers demanded was a fluffy white loaf, a fluffy no, uh, loaf produced with very high gluten wheat. This was actually impossible to grow in Britain. So there's a, there is a real reason for outsourcing here. Um, you can't make bread like this with, with, with wheat that was grown in, in England and Scotland. So North American wheat farming thrives through the creation of new wheat breeds like Red Fife and Marquis. Adapted to the soils and climatic conditions of Canada, 
um, often using wheat that had been imported from, from Russia. The development of, of roller milling in the 1870s allowed for the production of extremely refined flowers. So we have new technologies and biological innovation creating the possibility of an avalanche of very unfibrous bread fit for the drunk or toothless. So the British nutrition transition involves a rising consumption of meat, wheat, uh, and of course, uh, sugar, although I don't have time to talk about sugar here, I'm happy to answer questions on sugar. This involves exceptional levels of imports, which drew, drew Britain into deep connections economically and ecologically, um, and even politically, with North America, Argentina, Australasia, with India, with Germany, with Denmark, and some of these places, the connections were very symbiotic. By 1914, almost 60% of the calorific value and over half of the monetary value of food consumed in Britain came from overseas. And this involved biological innovation, land-raised pigs, Hereford cattle, Marquis wheat. Let's not also forget here, a uh, shout out to Germany for the role of, of German sugar beet often overlooked in this history uh, before World War I. Most uh, sugar um, was actually sugar beet that was consumed in Britain. Um, so we can sum up here, and there's a whole uh, series of consequences here. I can't talk about most of these today. That you, you, you'd have to look in the book for these public health issues, issues of pathogens, animal diseases, sanitation, questions of food security and famine, um, and and all kinds of issues relating to the sort of geopolitics of food. What I'm going to talk about here is um, is health. This diet was uh, was refined, concentrated, fiber stripped, dehydrated, highly seasoned, durable. Um, it was materially heterogeneous by which I mean to say that more and more food is, cons is consumed that's made of lots of ingredients mixed together. When you see those lists of ingredients on the sides of, of, um, of food boxes, that's not the way people have eaten throughout most of history. It's also plentiful by historical standards. And there are a set of complicated uh, bodily effects here. Um, improved disease resistance, particularly towards tuberculosis, um, diminished micronutrient deficiency, particularly after the discovery of vitamins in the early um, 20th century. Clear increases in, in human height uh, and to some extent uh, weight. Greater available energy for, for male workers. This is valuable to the industrial revolution and improved maternal health in the 20th century and consequently fetal and infant health too. These are significant positives. It, it, this is not meant to, to argue that this is a cataclysmic development for human health. But the body remade by the nutrition transition was also vulnerable to several relatively novel health conditions, sometimes called lifestyle diseases or diseases of civilization. Civilization has made it too easy to find and difficult foods we ought to eat noted the plimmers, a couple of public health and food writers in 1925. Today, we often refer to um, this process as evolutionary mismatch theory. The idea that the body that we evolved, the, the environment we evolved to inhabit has been replaced by something artificial, something synthetic, and consequently the body struggles in certain ways in this. The sugary, starchy British diet was blamed, and I quote, for the decay of man, the decay of his teeth, his arteries, his bowels and his joints, 
on a colossal and unprecedented scale. White bread and sugary cakes um, caused the expanding waistlines and clogged bowels of what Alan Long memorably calls a nation of, quote, constipated toothless fatties in 1980. So we can sort of start to see that the way that contemporaries responded to what they saw as a health crisis caused by the new diet. Um, tooth decay, for example. So prevalent is disease of teeth that the public have come to regard it as a normal condition for every child to have one or more carious teeth. And this is not mere hyperbole. Skeletal studies show that increasing use of refined foods has generated greater levels of carious teeth dental abscesses and, and periodontal disease. And serious concerns were also raised incidentally about the, uh, the transformation of the British face. Uh, the, the idea that the, because jaws were, were not sufficiently used that the British face was kind of collapsing and producing malocclusion and, and protrusion of the upper jaw. And as those of you who've been to England will know, this is what English people look like. The idea was sustained by studies comparing the bodies of those passing through the nutrition transition to those as yet untouched by it. This showed that uh, appendicitis, dyspepsia, heart disease, diabetes, various forms of cancer were almost non-existent in places consuming what was regarded as a traditional diet. Veneration of the diets of certain non-Western people followed. Um, there was, interestingly enough, a tremendous scare about constipation in the late 19th century. The, the argument was here that this increasingly refined and fiber-free diet was effectively getting stuck inside the body. The overburdened colon was, and I quote, a slow poison factory, a cesspit, which eventually became twisted or kinked. This was the argument of Arbuthnot Lane, um, entirely flawed argument. Um, the result, he argued, was something called auto-intoxication, where the body literally began poisoning itself from within. He's, he noted, this spells the failure of civilization, is a veritable Pandora's box, out of which cascaded almost every ailment known to humanity, from cancer to shell shock. The cures for intestinal uh, poisoning were manifold, abdominal douches, dubious rectal drills, oxygen baths, and ultimately, uh, the rise in um, brown bread or, or more wholemeal forms of bread, particularly associated with Hovis, um, which um, began in 1885. So th this was, a, in a sense, an attempt to sort of turn back the clock to a diet that was less refined, that, that, was, that was noticeably uh, browner and so forth. Now, we actually end um, seeing a, a craze for the removal of, uh, of, of the human colon um, practiced by Lane. And I detail this in the book, I'll spare you the, the details. But it's important to note here that people like Lane were not just cranks, along with various psychologists and so forth, they were already positing a profound connection between, between the health of the guts and mental health. Um, Francis Brooke of Guy's Hospital in 1912 postulated a direct causal relationship, and I quote, between um, distinctive fecal flora and what he called uh, alimentary toxemia in neurasthenic patients. These are people having nervous breakdowns, blamed on the diet, blamed on the gut. So uh, books like Guts uh, by Julia Ender, sort of a, a bestseller of a few years back, uh, actually 
saying something that's been that we've been discussing for at least 100 years. Now, there were more intractable concerns emerging, most notably expanding British waistlines. Numerous 19th century observers, including American ones, uh, noted anecdotally that British people seem to be getting fatter. And there were worries about health risks here, particularly associated with a writer called William Banting, who was a, an undertaker who had actually built uh, the coffin for the Duke of Wellington, um, who produced this best-selling letter on corpulence. Now, this is published in, in um, the early 1860s. His, his, his diet here that he recommended was literally a low-carb diet. Um, and he argued that since he sort of given up potatoes and beer and so forth and white bread, he'd lost an awful lot of weight. Um, what was actually happening here was something of a historical inversion. Um, being obese has historically um, only been feasible for the wealthy, who often flaunted it as a corporeal manifestation of social power. But obesity really begins to become democratized in the 19th and certainly 20th century when declining physical activity combined with post-war dietary abundance seriously began to unsettle British hormones, meaning the prevalence of, of obesity um, in Britain began to spike, actually doubled between 1980 and 1991. Um, Philip James, chairman of the International Obesity Task Force, reported in 1904 the rise in obesity in Britain is as fast or faster than anywhere else in the world. Well, why is this? Why is obesity something actually we might see as an Anglo world problem? Places where people speak English. I think it's the, the particular inheritance of this diet. Um, it's also, I think, linked to the economic principles upon which the British diet was built. In, in a book called The Spirit Level, uh, Wilkinson and Pickett have argued that um, inequality has all kinds of uh, bodily effects from mental health um, to, to physical health. They argue that stress plays a significant role in unequal societies, um, generating obesity by releasing cortisol, stimulating the consumption of sugary comfort foods. So this major role of, of stress and helplessness and subordination in more individualistic societies. This is a, you know, this is a complex argument, but, it, but it's one that I think there's something to it. Um, it's also the case that corporations have more successfully reconfigured the nutritional landscape in Britain and America than they have um, in, in other countries. So this is kind of economic metabolic relationship here. There's an important gender dimension to this as well. Um, women tended to eat more foods consisting of empty calories, sugar, white bread, tea, and margarine. These are often precisely the kinds of foods which produce weight gain. Uh, the female body does produce more subcutaneous fat during puberty. Women often tend to accumulate more weight, weight than men. This meant that in the later 19th century, there was a lot of anxiety about women's bodies in this diet. Uh, powerful norms emphasized um, female thinness and restraint. Um, there are many outcomes here. The overwork overworked, exhausted working women with a raft of minor ailments. But one of them um, is the emergence, and I apologize for this, this image, it's a pretty shocking image, of anorexia nervosa. The term emerged in the 1870s, it's coined simultaneously in England, England and France, to refer to loss of appetite with a particular nervous origin, replacing an over, uh, older expression, um, anorexia hysteria. And I think that this sort of dietary change 
is one of many complex factors that led to the eruption of this new condition, anorexia nervosa. So let's sum up. There's a sort of ambivalence here, um, clearly increasing size and strength, resistance to infection, in, uh, reduction in deficiency diseases, more energy, but then this whole raft of minor and major um, ailments associated with consuming um, the British diet. So I'm going to now switch gears to the final part of the talk and spend about 10 minutes more talking about ecology and the effect on the planet's health. What I write about in my book is something called the large planet philosophy, an idea that has effectively no limit to the amount of raw materials that Britain could import from across the planet, food, timber, and metals. Um, all countries undergoing development, pretty much all, even the United States, have followed this pathway to a certain extent, but it was taken further and more aggressively by Britain um, in the 19th century, leading to what was called the rise of ghost acreage, a, um, leading to a country needing large amounts of acres in other countries or phantom carrying capacity. The, the, the real amount of land used by Britain to sustain this diet was far larger than the surface area of the British Isles itself. Um, this became very political. Any, any attempt by say the conservatives to the conservative party to um, float protection would immediately be greeted with joy by liberals who would immediately point out that food prices would go up and that people would, would not have such a plentiful diet. So this is the 1906 election when the big loaf of the liberals defeated the little loaf of the conservatives. And this is linked to the entire global trading system. So the large planet philosophy um, triumphs. Um, Britain with its combination of economic takeoff and fossil fuel use and its desire for meat, wheat and sugar, pioneered large scale ecological overshoot, which is at global level is the basic reason for our environmental dilemma today. Um, if, you, if you take, for example, um, the paradigmatic British breakfast, it's not a British breakfast in terms of where it's coming from. If we look on, on here, uh, the eggs probably came from Russia, the grain uh, for the, for the uh, bread, probably came from Canada, the bacon came from Denmark, the, um, the tea came from India, the sugar in the tea came from Germany or from uh, the Caribbean and so forth. So eating this kind of food, making it culturally significant, implanted ecological overshoots and a large planet philosophy in the pleasurable and greasy everyday habits of British people. The English breakfast is actually a planetary breakfast. And so we begin to see um, this planetary deficit developing. Um, now, the ecological effects are more complicated and nuanced than this. So, uh, for example, what, what, when, the, when Britain starts to expand its, its uh, planetary footprint, um, it realizes that it's got a problem with fertilizer. Uh, that there's a desperate quest to, um, to track down nitrate and phosphate deposits. Uh, this is a Peruvian uh, guano mine. Um, this is blasting uh, the Chilean desert uh, for, for nitrates and ultimately before the invention of synthetic nitrates by, by Germany in the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, by effectively mining 
fertilizer and then synthesizing it or using fossil fuels for it, humans temporarily but spectacularly escaped the limit of the natural nitrogen cycle. They were catapulted into the fertilizer epoch. And this is a, a representation of the transformed nitrogen cycle. And you can see, if you, if you look at this, uh, that, that these are, as it were, diagrams of how nature works. But you can see that with things like fossil waste, um, cadavers, slaughterhouse waste, and so forth, that humans are becoming intrinsically interwoven in planetary cycles. Um, and along with nitrogen emissions from power plants and cars, this is caused by the leaching of nitrates into waterways has caused eutrophication, acidification, the accumulation of tropospheric ozone and greenhouse gases. This uh, diagram has famously been created um, to refer to a series of planetary boundaries that humans um, are in danger of crossing through their activities. You'll see down here, phosphorus and nitrogen. We've already exceeded um, a, a certain risk level here. We're over-consuming uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, and, and there's the inputs here are causing um, ecological problems. There's clear evidence of the linkage between the kind of food system Britain put in place uh, and the Anthropocene. Another example here is, is deforestation. Um, grasslands rapidly replace forests in all the places where, where Britain um, colonised and used for food. This is from New Zealand. Um, where there's a very, very rapid transition uh, involving the cutting and burning of North Island bush in the 1890s and 1900s, the destruction of about 85% of New Zealand's original wetlands. Um, one contemporary noted, I, I quote, the vast changes wrought in habitat relations and in New Zealand swords almost wholly British in character. Another uh, aspect of this um, is soil erosion, the, um, the dust bowl of the 1930s as one of its causes, um, the relentless uh, farming of the American uh, South to produce exports for the British markets. But it's also important to note here that the, the Dust Bowl was a global event. The Dust Bowl um, hit Canada, the Dust Bowl hit South Africa, the Dust Bowl hit Australia. There'd been Dust Bowl situations in Russia in the 19th century. And extreme fertile has been reckless as agriculture was implanted. Um, and we have a quote from William Vogt's famous book, The Road to Survival. Britain, he says, is a contented parasite, drawing on the eroding hillsides of New, New England, Iowa, Maryland, Argentina, South Africa, of Australia and India. The famous steaks and chops at Simpsons carried with them the nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and other soil minerals from half the world. So these are, these are some of the ways in which contemporaries began to connect transformations in diet with planetary problems at an ecological level. Um, here we have a, a diagram showing the ecological footprint of London alone is basically um, the same, uh, it basically covers most of England, Wales and Scotland, um, 293 times its geographical area. So the obvious point being that not everyone can consume like this because we soon run out of land. One final point here is um, extinction. Um, ecologists often talk of what's called a six, the sixth extinction, which is the, the sixth mass extinction in the Earth's history. There have been five previous ones. Think about the end of the dinosaurs and so on. Um, 
the reconfigured commodity frontiers supplying Britain's foods were heavily controlled ecosystems with homogenized plant communities and reduced biodiversity right from the beginning. Um, the, the war on, on insects, on unwanted species, on weeds was underway. And this produces simplified ecosystems, losing their capacity to self-regulate, um, more vulnerable to viral infections. They have higher densities of insect pests. Um, monocultures are ecologically rather dubious, but this kind of farming is heavily monocultural. And from the early years of the nutrition transition, um, I've mentioned to you the sort of exports of livestock around the world and the formation of new species. We also see the extinction of, uh, sorry, the, the formation of new breeds, the extinction of many breeds of pig, of sheep, of cattle. In The Origin of Species, Charles Darwin wrote about the, quote, process of extermination among our domestic cattle, noting how the ancient black cattle of Yorkshire have been displaced by longhorns and how longhorns have then been displaced by shorthorns. The same um, in a history of British pigs, uh, with the, the extinction of pigs like the Lincolnshire curly coat and the small white. Um, the large white Ulster pig uh, also uh, was created to produce bacon for the British market in Ireland, was extinct by the 1960s because the Danish bacon was more popular. We have all kinds of now extinct British cattle breeds. Um, dominant cattle breeds, on the other hand, have immense biomass, but very reduced gene pools because the process of artificial insemination um, allows vast numbers of young to be produced from a single father, reducing effective population size. And that's some um, path-breaking British artificial insemination equipment from the middle of the 20th centuries. So let's just sum up. The ecological issues are far less ambivalent than the health issues. It's very difficult to argue that this diet is good for our planet. We have a cascade of phosphates, nitrates, deforestation, soil erosion, excessive fossil fuel use, food miles, reduced biodiversity. Um, it's estimated that world food systems are probably the biggest driver of um, climate change, uh, more so the, than industry. Little wonder, I think we, we might note that Britain um, has been home to two of the most powerful movements opposing the general thrust of the nutrition transition. Vegetarianism from the early 19th century, formation of vegetarian clubs and societies. Um, vegetarianism in its conscious modern form. This is not a religious based. Um, this, is a, this is not a, a kind of um, a diet which takes its cues from religious or cosmological values or from simple shortages. It's a diet that's, that's ethically and ecologically opposed to meat consumption. And also on the right here, um, organic farming developing in the early 20th century. Uh, this is a man called Friend Sykes and a huge heap of compost. So a quick conclusion, because I'm aware that I've had my 35 minutes. Um, although the British diet has often been the subject of international ridicule, um, the system which produced and sustained it and the foodstuffs it supplied have been historically enormously consequential. Um, now, if we return to the Eat Lancet report, the 2007-2008 um, financial and food crisis. Um, one diet, this is when we see tremendous spikes in food prices, um, is one dimension of an emergent compound slow crisis 
of energy, food, de development, finance, and climate. Um, spike in grain prices, convergence of drought, biofuel production, electronic speculation. In a world increasingly bifurcated into stuffed and starved. Now, there's a tendency for us to conflate these recent developments um, with the whole history of crisis. I hope I've shown you today that we need to take a longer historical perspective. Moving back to the 19th, 18th century, we could even push this, this further if we wanted. The period when Britain was the dominant world food power and the center of the world food system, 1840 to 1950, saw the establishment of a global complex um, producing vast quantities of wheat, meat and sugar. Um, this diet fueled by synthetic nitrate has become in one form or another the aspirational diet of all developing countries. And um, wherever it unfolds, as the Eat Lancet report notes, we see a symmetry of provision, we see obesity, we see diabetes, we see ecological strain. So the momentum of this food system forged over 200 years weighs heavily on our complex present. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Chris, thank you so very much for that, that exceptionally interesting uh, and fascinating uh, talk about, uh, about our food history uh, and exposing us to all sorts of new ideas and, and ways to think about it. Um, we have a lot of questions that have come in um, for, uh, for you about, uh, about what you've been saying today. Uh, we took a bunch of questions before uh, the people uh, gave to us when they signed up. Uh, and uh, we've had some others that are coming in now. If you have a question to ask, please use the, uh, the kind of Q&A function, which is at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And we'll do our best to, to fit in as many as we can. Um, one question we've had come through uh, a, a great deal in the questions that have been asked uh, has to do with the sort of relationship between population size uh, and, and food. You mentioned today in, in the talk about the different types of food we've eaten and the different technologies and, and changing species and this sort of thing. Um, and, but the question that, that people have been asking is, so in what, to what degree is the current food crisis uh, more simply the result of the unprecedented increase in the population over the past two centuries? In the sense we've gone from about 1 billion people on the planet in 1803 to almost 7.7, .7, almost 8 billion people uh, today. And so what is, the, what is the relationship between kind of population size and, uh, and this fundamental change in food production and consumption that you've been talking about today? Right, it's a good question. It's a deceptively difficult question. Um, in, the, in the 70s, there was an awful lot of alarmism uh, about a global population growth, thinking particularly of uh, Ehrlich's population bomb. The argument here was very bleak, was that human population was, was soon going to, a very Malthusian argument, human population was soon going to outstrip planetary uh, productivity and we were going to head into, into a, a spiraling crisis. The problem with these kinds of arguments is it makes no allowance for what and how people eat. The, the, the argument here is that is if everybody eats like a, an average American eats, we can't sustain a population um, of, of 7 billion. We can't even sustain a population of about three or four billion. On the other hand, if, if um, as the Lancet report suggests, if we seriously reduce our meat consumption, if we eat a, a much more vegetarian diet, the planet can easily support a population of seven billion. 
So it's really, it's not about population per se, it's about population and what that population eats. There are problems obviously, because if, if the aspirational diet is, is this meat, wheat, sugar diet, and we can add alcohol and caffeine and, 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 and dairy into that too, then this becomes a cultural problem. So it's a problem of our culture and our perceptions rather than our absolute numbers. So that, that would be my, my short answer to that question. You, um, you talked about the kind of cultural origins of this diet in, in, in Britain uh, and in England in, in particular and the kind of preferences for, for meat and sugar. Um, and I, one of the questions that's come our way is how and why does this, this kind of cultural diet spread to other cultures? If, if, if it's a British interest based on British culture in this types of, these types of food, uh, what then makes it appealing? What makes it the aspirational diet for, uh, right. for everybody across the planet? Right, well, I think first of all, um, it, it's not only in Britain that, that meat has been a high status food. In, in many cultures around the world, meat is a high status food, just as in many cultures around the world, um, refined grains, particularly, particularly wheat in Europe, has been an operative refined rice, for example, has also been high status. So it's not that the British sort of put these things together, although roast beef and Britishness did have a certain connection that was that was particularly um, was very particular to Britain. So it's not as if it has to necessarily um, persuade countries to abandon a more sustainable diet. Um, what it does do is it makes the link between that diet becoming um, general and becoming democratized and a certain sort of economic progress. So um, associated with industrialization, development, whatever things we want to call it, the argument here is, is made implicitly and explicitly that as that happens, you get more of this. And economists soon begin to, um, to see this as almost an iron law. It's sort of Bennett's law, the, the established in, in about 1950, arguing that the richer a country gets, the, the smaller the percentage of, of income goes on starchy staples and the, and the higher percentage goes towards meat, um, animal proteins. And this is, this is borne out in, in almost every country. So, um, so that's that it, that it spreads through this kind of um, emulation model of, of development and industrialization rather than diet per se. So, and the point is it's, this is not necessarily about cuisine um, you can, there are, there are many ways of, of cooking this stuff. You don't have to just have a huge slab of meat with a pile of potatoes. That's an Anglo world thing. Yeah. It seems to define British cuisine, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, question for you from the audience uh, here today. Um, the, uh, the changes of the nutrition transition follow uh, a clear economic logic, but with seeds of health disasters. Uh, perhaps fair to say in summary, uh, acute improvements in the bounty of food and increased immediate energy while chronic conditions worsened. Uh, and um, uh, the question here is, were there voices at the time that, that challenged this transition? Yes, um, and, and I think it's important to note that there are, there are voices challenging every aspect of this, tradition, of this transition right the way through. Um, so it was, immediately, we live in an age since the 1840s of, of big data about health, for example. 
And so whether it's anecdotally or in the collation of data, statistics were proving that certain things were developing. Um, heart disease, that the British were getting heavier, that there was a greater incidence of diabetes and so forth. So voices were raised and these, these voices often urged the reversal of the nutrition transition and, and a diet that um, particularly returned to um, a more heavy fiber consumption, for example. And these things soon become marketed. So, uh, but then Hovis bread, a lot of Hovis bread in England is actually just, is no better than white bread. Um, you just sort of, you know, you can, you can go to the store and get brown bread that's, that's basically white bread that's just dyed brown. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, th this, is, this is not something that people were unaware of. I think you can see with, uh, with movements like vegetarians and, and organic farmers, you can, you can see that, uh, that too. One of the, uh, one of the topics you, you, you mentioned very briefly uh, was the sort of question of, of kind of uh, of race or sort of food injustice uh, or kind of the the differences in access uh, to food uh, globally and uh, uh, one of the folks in the audience was interested about in what ways has racism played a role historically in the health and nutrition of marginalized populations right right it's, it's obviously a, a, a immensely important question I think you probably the most basic example uh, the most basic way to come at this is there was a certain self-awareness of this diet um, being um, a white man's diet. Uh, Winston Churchill said this very explicitly, where he, you know, he, he talked about how, um, you know, the uh, the brown races, apologize for language, um, had not learned to live on anything better than than rice. And and one thing, it's not just it's not just meat. Wheat is seen as a very um, and you know there are fairly obvious ways in which white wheat uh, has these certain resonances, but but white uh, wheat bread is seen as being the white person's bread, and there are appallingly racist statements running running throughout this. Um, that said, as I noted in my in my talk, there is a um, well, this plays out in so many different ways. There's also at the same time as the argument that the traditional non-white diet is a weak diet, this is this is these people are not strong enough to resist our conquest as we overpower them with our meat and wheat. There is also this inverse argument that actually we're the unhealthy ones, and their diet is what should be emulated. But also across the colonial world, there, there's also the idea that non-white people don't need as much food and certainly don't need as much protein. This comes up in in, in ongoing debates in India. Uh, and during the Indian famines, where the, um, as many people I'm sure are well aware, there were dreadful famines in India in the, in the late 19th century. And the British response to, the, to this is, um, is appalling, is, is, is racist, um, is borderline genocidal, in fact. One argument that was often made by, by British administrators was that, you know, Indian populations didn't need much protein. They, 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 they don't need, they, because they're, they're used to a diet that's, that's already so minimal, that why should we feed them any, any more? So that's another way in which, in which race plays out. It's worth noting in, in, an, in another aspect of this, this diet was very class-based too, is, is that the higher up the ladder you go, um, the more meat you get to eat, the more vegetables you get to eat as well. There are, there are ways in which the diet of the poor becomes increasingly a, a diet of white bread, margarine and sugary tea with occasional bits of meat, and the meat there is usually consumed by, by the man. 
So the, the class and gender aspects are important too. We have a lot of questions uh, revolving around what should we do now? So we've got to this point uh, and uh, one of the members of our audience says, history is good, but what can we do now? Uh, and let me put together just a few of these um, to get your thoughts you know, based upon what you've learned from the study of the history um, to try to answer some of these. So. Uh, yeah, a few, a few of these all together. Do you think it's possible to gain the health benefits uh, of this diet without, uh, without the challenges and harms? In other words, can the food system learn from what we know here, uh, or does it need to be rebuilt from the, uh, you know, from, from, the, uh, from above the bottom up? Um, based upon the, the patterns of, of human production, sorry, human food production and consumption that you see here, is there such a thing as a sustainable food system that we could try to implement here? Um, do we have, uh, you know, as people who, who know about uh, these kinds of issues, do we have a moral imperative to change the way we farm uh, or to change the way we eat? Um, and then many people ask basically the equivalent of what, what should I do? What are the individual choices that I should be making today to try to help mitigate uh, some of the harm of the current food production system. I know that's a lot, Chris, but uh, um, there's a lot of interest in these kinds of questions. And uh, yeah, please take on whatever you can there. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is, I, and I say at the very end of the book, that um, this all, and when I gave my, when I got my readers reports on the book, one of my reviewers, you know, was said, you know, this is, this is such a negative book. This is such a, you know, this is kind of almost an apocalyptic story. And, and I didn't want it to read fully like that. And I make the point at the end of my book, we, we're not doomed at all. There are, there are clearly ways in which we can transform our diets and transform farming. We, we've been able to, to um, we've made tremendous technological strides these, uh, and, and we understand so much about nutrition and farming that the Eat Lancet report states it very bluntly. If you change your diet, if we can change diets and become far more vegetarian, though you don't need to be vegetarian, you need to eat much less meat um, and much more vegetables, many more vegetables, eat more locally. Um, we, can, we can do this. The problem is actually not in farming and economics. The problem is more cultural. And the, the really, really difficult thing to do is to persuade your average American male and your average British male and your average Frenchman um, that a diet that's largely vegetarian is progressive. Um, and that's extremely difficult because all of these issues of nationalism, masculinity are so historically interwoven um, with, uh, with food culture. And I think that that's what history teaches us is the historical momentum takes a long time to change. And so I think that people are working like communication theory, for example, um, who deal with issues of how information spreads. They're the people to actually look to more perhaps than, than, than even scientists because it's, it's changing perceptions. If that seems to be harder than actually uh, doing the farming itself. And I've got no idea how you do that. 
I've got no idea how you persuade, um, you know, the driver of a gas guzzling vehicle to have to eat lentils. Is there, is there, I'm just to push you on this one, because uh, we've had some questions about this. Are there, uh, are there any examples from the history that you've studied uh, where there has been a sort of successful convincing of people to change dietary uh, habits? I mean, are any of the efforts of you know, the FDA or, or similar groups around the world uh, successful in, in, in producing wise food choices and, and, and consumption? Um, are there ways? Are there ways in which we can accelerate this process of cultural change that you, you've seen from uh, uh, from your historical story? I'll give you a 19th century story, um, and it's not necessarily about producing a. Actually, it is about producing perhaps a more sustainable uh, food system. The history of horse meat is quite interesting, as horse meat was pretty much illegal all over Europe until the early 19th century and, and was consumed in vanishingly small quantities and people were executed for eating it. Um, Voltaire got very upset about this. It was, and, and yet over the course of the 19th century, um, horse meat consumption was decriminalized basically across much of Europe and became um, not a massive major part of diets in France and Belgium and Germany, but became significant and consequential. And it was associated with, with eating clapped out old horses um, who were good for nothing but the knacker. Um, and this was actually a, a form of being self-sufficient in meat. The, the important thing to note here is that the Anglo world wants none of this. And the arguments once again are cultural, is that, is that when there's a, there's a famous horse meat banquet held in London in 1865, this guy called Algernon Sidney Bicknell hosts a, uh, a huge feast of horse sausages and horse soup. Um, because he, he uses French, because it's Chevaline, he uses French words, um, but people refuse to, um, to run with this. Butchers refuse to um, kill horses, uh, people refuse to eat it, and it's couched in almost entirely cultural terms. So there's an attempt to change the diet by adding a new animal. Um, which is, I mean, and horse meat might be the only new animal that we've seriously added to our diet in some parts of the world in the last couple of hundred years. At the moment, I think the comparable thing to think about is insect consumption. We, we're continuing, and it's obviously, we've got, I've got a live buffet outside my house right now. It's obviously a, we're continually told that micro livestock or whatever you want to call it is the way forward uh, in terms of very sustainable forms of protein. The cultural leap there is massive. History tells us that changing diets um, is very hard. These things are very embedded. Um, that said, the history of vegetarianism shows us that we can, I mean, the UK has a pretty high number of vegetarians. The history of vegetarianism shows us that, that a marginal uh, or a minority population can change its diet. But so overall, um, history doesn't suggest changing diet is easy. That's what I'd say in a sort of rambling fashion. Well, so even with all the cicadas outside, uh, we still uh, we still have to change how we think about food uh, before we can make that kind of a shift. Um, Chris, uh, thank you so very much uh, for taking the time today to uh, to speak with us. Um, we are all uh, extraordinarily grateful uh, for uh, for you 
coming today and sharing your expertise and your passion for history uh, and giving us new ways to think about uh, this current crisis that, uh, that we face. Uh, I hope all of us in the audience will, will join me in giving Chris a, a, a virtual round of applause. Um, and so thank you, Chris, very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, I'd also just like to thank uh, everyone for joining us today. Uh, and uh, also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Clara Davison, Maddie Kerma, and Jade Lack for their assistance with the program. And also the History Department, the Harvey Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, the Clio Society, the Bexley Public Library, and the magazine Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective uh, for their sponsorship of this event today. And once again, thank you, our audience, uh, for your excellent questions uh, and for your ongoing connection uh, with Ohio State. Stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time.